Do your children seek the truth? How about within the pages of a novel? And where can you find a novel that is Christ-centered and not tainted with the lies of evolution? Well, right here, within the pages of the Truth Seekers Mystery Series by Media Angels Publishing. As a mom and owner of Media Angels, my daughter and I co-authored a series of books that would teach a love of finding the truth and include a focus on the truth about God's creation. I hope you join us within the pages of the novel or anytime at MediaAngels.com. I pray you always seek truth. This podcast is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. What is creation? Did God create the world in six days and rest on the seventh? Does anyone really care? These questions and many more, including teaching tips and great resources, are presented in the Creation Science Podcast. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and it's my pleasure and honor to be your host. Some of these shows are from my Best of Creation Expos, and other presentations I've completed throughout the years of teaching on this topic. I'm the owner of Media Angels, Inc., a publishing company that produces books, audios, and videos to help you and your family in your Christian walk. Check out my books and other podcasts at MediaAngels.com. To get the show notes for this broadcast, go to CreationSciencePodcast.com. And now, let's learn together. Hey, everyone, and welcome. This is Felice Gerwitz. Today, we are going to talk about climate change, the real story. And, you know, we all want to be good stewards of our environment. And most of us realize that certain regions of the world have been overforested or the ecosystems have been destroyed, you know. But there is some hysteria today, for lack of a better word, that just seems so over the top. So today, I have a noted scientist, Dr. Jay Weil, who is going to take some of the mystery out of climate change, and hopefully, Jay, explain it in a way we can understand. Welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, you have a degree um, in a PhD, actually, in nuclear chemistry, and you've been the author of several series of books. And uh, you have written a younger uh, level book, K through 6, uh, that is uh, really doing well, uh, that goes through a science from the perspective of history. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's an it's a, uh, a interesting idea. I've never seen it completely done before. I've seen uh, certain books that try and address science historically. But basically, I start with creation, which is the beginning of history. And then I just go through history, learning science as it was learned by scientists. And what's really great about it is it shows you how science actually works, that, you know, science is mostly the story of one person coming up with an idea that's almost completely wrong. And then over time, people refining it to get it closer and closer to being right. That's really what science is. Uh, You know, Aristotle kind of started all of science uh, and almost everything he said was wrong. (laughs) <laughs> but, but without him, we wouldn't have the science we have today. Um, uh, so uh, uh, that's what's really cool. Uh, in the book, the books, every it's very, they're very hands-on because every time you do science, you end up doing uh, something with your hands, usually an experiment. It's all very simple stuff, but it actually communicates some pretty profound uh, scientific truths. Um, uh, so it's it's a fun curriculum if you like doing uh, hands-on stuff. Uh, and it's just a really unique way to learn science. 
Yeah, I had I had trouble with the philosophy. I ended up taking it. I got lost when it, you know, I think therefore I am. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's right. like, that was like, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's actually anyway, a lesson um, in one of my books about that. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a he's a dualist, and so he thinks there's a sort of a supernatural component to the world and a natural component to the world, and they're somehow linked. Uh, and so uh, they actually, well, actually, I have the students do an experiment where uh, one student looks at a picture, another student hasn't seen the picture, the student looking at the picture describes it, and the other student writes it, or tries to draw it based on the description. Very cool. Uh, and what Descartes Very saying cool. is the one student's using his natural eyesight to then communicate supernaturally to the other student using concepts and concepts are supernatural. And then that student is taking those supernatural concepts and then translating them back into something natural, a drawing. Very cool. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> How did you think of that? <laughs> I don't know. It's the voices side. in my head that talk. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't know you had this creative side in, in you. you. Well, I guess we do because probably our audience doesn't know that you're an actor. If I lived nearby, I'd come see one of your plays. But uh, but you love acting, so there has love to be that creative. Uh, yeah, very, very cool. All right. Climate change, global warming. What is what is it? Let's start with that. Well, uh, it started out as global warming uh, because in the end, uh, the argument was we know that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going up and we can trace it directly to uh, human activity. Uh, we know that the burning of fuel has produced more carbon dioxide than the earth can get rid of, so it builds up in the atmosphere. And that's really well known. Uh, and so we also know that one reason our a planet can support life is because of the carbon dioxide and other gases in the atmosphere that help to retain the heat that the sun uh, uh, gives to the earth. And so if there were, wasn't any carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it would be too cold to support life and earth wouldn't be uh, livable at all. But there's a certain amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that warms the planet up enough uh, to make it habitable. So the argument is, since we are now pouring more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that's going to retain more heat and that's going to warm up the planet. And of course, if the planet gets too hot, then lots of terrible things happen. Like, for example, all the glaciers start melting and that increases sea level and uh, people lose their homes and things like that. Also, it'll be a disruption in crops and so forth. Um, and, you know, uh, for a long time, uh, uh, scientists were just saying, here, we've got these computer models that, are that show you as carbon dioxide goes up, temperature goes up. So if you just wait a few years, you're going to see the globe warming. The problem is the globe hasn't warmed much. Uh, it's warmed a little bit over the last 100 years. Most of the warming took place before the 70s. Uh, so uh, it's been hard to convince people that this carbon dioxide is causing the earth to get warm. So uh, we've now changed it to climate change because this carbon dioxide is supposedly now uh, not really warming the planet, but the energy that it's trapping is, is producing more extreme weather environments. Uh, so climate change is uh, more extreme weather uh, situations caused by this imbalance of carbon dioxide. And of course, what's nice about saying climate change is anytime anything weird happens, we can say, oh, that's caused by climate change, <laughs> right? Uh, right? So it's become so, a very popular uh, propaganda tool. So what evidence do we have? So now we just have another terminology. I mean, is there any science that backs this? 
Well, uh, there is there is evidence that the Earth has warmed a little bit, but the problem is it's been warming since the mid 1800s. Uh, so whether or not the warming that we're seeing is part of this trend that started in the mid 1800s, long before uh, buildup of carbon dioxide was a big problem, whether or not it's part of just that natural thing that seems to be happening anyway, and whether it's caused by human induced uh, or, or human caused carbon dioxide, we really don't know. Uh, so uh, we know the carbon dioxide traps heat, but we don't know how much more heat is trapped when you add more carbon dioxide. So one of the, whenever anybody talks to me about climate change and they think they're really knowledgeable about climate change, there's one question I ask them, it's very simple. What is the equilibrium climate sensitivity? Now, most people who, who I'm sure Greta Thornburg has no idea what equilibrium climate sensitivity means. I'm sure most people who campaign about global warming have no idea even what that phrase means. But it is the single most important piece of data related to global warming and climate change. The equilibrium climate sensitivity is defined as how much will global temperatures increase if the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere doubles. And that question is completely unanswered. We've done lots of studies, lots of studies published in the peer-reviewed literature, and the answer is it's somewhere between zero degrees and 3.5 degrees. And that's all we know. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any trend. It's not like most of the studies indicate that it's one or two. Uh, some studies end up having a very low equilibrium climate sensitivity, which basically means we can double carbon dioxide and nothing significant happens to global temperature. Other studies uh, uh, produce a very large equilibrium climate sensitivity, which means you double carbon dioxide and, and uh, everything gets really hot and bad things happen. And the fact is, if I look at the most recent studies on equilibrium climate sensitivity, nobody agrees. And if that single most important question, how much does carbon dioxide affect the temperature of the earth, if that can't be answered scientifically, then you can't say scientifically whether or not global warming is a problem. You just can't. Until we know equilibrium climate sensitivity, we have no idea. <laughs> no earthly idea. Now, so we're not we're not going to be gone in twelve years. <laughs> yeah, I can I can I can, I can uh, assure everyone that unlike some politicians have said, we will not be gone in twelve years. And in fact, anything we do in the short term will not cannot have a long term effect on climate change. It can't by definition. Anything we do in the short term can't produce a long term effect. We have to do it in the long term. Uh, so whether we start now or 12 years from now, it's going to make some difference, but it'll be a minor difference compared to the long-term effects, whatever those long-term effects are. Uh, and that's just standard scientific reasoning. I can't take a short-term uh, action and produce a significant long-term effect. You know, like, uh, for example, they, we have the Paris Climate Accord. Some people, you know, uh, some countries jumped in on that. The uh, U.S. originally jumped in on it and pulled out. Everyone agrees, even the people who are for the Paris Climate Accord, agrees that if every country followed the Paris Climate Accords, the average temperature of the Earth would decrease by about 0.01%. 0 0.01, wow. not 0 0.01 degrees, 0.01%. And that's if every country agreed to the Climate Paris Accords. <laughs> so, so that's an example of how short-term action cannot produce long-term goals, especially when it comes to climate. 
Uh, so, so why are they coming out with the, the, this data that's extrapolated and the world's ending and we've got 12 year olds crying at the, you know, UN or wherever the heck she was. And, you know, there's all of this gloom and doom. Right. This well, is a scare uh, tech. I mean, it was, yeah. there's a syndrome out there now. I don't know if you know about that. You know, it's the anxiety caused by people who are worried about climate change. Absolutely. And, and please understand, first of all, the scientific, li- this is not reflected in the scientific literature. If you do a search of all the scientific literature on climate change, uh, you will find almost no uh, scientific article that expects a catastrophic, catastrophic outcome. And for the ones who talk about a catastrophic outcome, it's catastrophic outcomes for certain regions of the world. So there's nothing in the scientific literature that says the world's going to end. Uh, because of climate change. Not even the most rabid, not even Michael Mann, who's probably the most rabid climate change advocate around, when he publishes in the scientific literature, he doesn't say that because he can't because scientific literature is peer-reviewed and and the scientists know that that's all nonsense. However, Mm -hmm. what we've done in in our nation, and you see this not only in climate change, you see it in creation, evolution, and all of that, we have weaponized science. Uh, so in the end, people see in the scientific literature, oh, there's a whole bunch of papers saying that increased carbon dioxide means increased temperature. Uh, and we know that increased temperature means glaciers melt and things like that. Therefore, the world's coming to an end and we have to trumpet it. That's taking science and weaponizing it to, su- to support a political uh, agenda. And we do that all the time. We do that with philosophical agendas too, you know. Um, People are always looking for a gene that causes people to be gay. No such gene will ever be found. That's impossible. Uh, but people are looking for it because if I can find a gene that makes it more likely for you to be gay, then I can say being gay is natural. And the goal isn't to figure out what makes a person gay. Goal is to be able to weaponize science to make your philosophical agenda convincing. And that's the real problem. So all of these nonsensical statements, like, for example, uh, what was last year or the year before, we had three hurricanes all in the northern hemisphere all at the same time, and two of them were Category 4 and one was Category 5 or something like that. And everybody was saying these hurricanes are a direct result of, of climate change. However, the scientific literature is very clear on this. If you track both number of hurricanes and intensity of hurricanes over the last 50 years, there's been absolutely no trend. Uh, there's the hurricanes have not gotten more plentiful or uh, more uh, energetic over the last 50 years. So the argument that it's a result of climate change is absolutely false. The scientific literature shows that, but that doesn't matter to the politicians or the people writing the articles and so forth. They, they see that there are these three hurricanes all at once. It's unusual. And so therefore they can weaponize that and use that to support their agenda. Yeah, and Florida's big. I mean, where I'm from, we we get a lot of the hurricanes and things. So, um, yeah, I remember they they were talking about that because one year we got three, but it has to do with with so many other factors. Even there, we always laugh and we call it the the spaghetti model of improbability because uh, they 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 draw these things of where it's going to hit, you know, and very rarely uh, do they you know, get it right. That's why they have so many different, they just can't predict where they're, where it's going. So, yeah. So 
going back to this, what are some things that we really have to know? Because, um, you know, this is, like you said, been politicized. We're hearing it every other day. It, it reminds me a little bit about the creation versus evolution. If you don't believe in evolution, you're stupid. If you don't believe that dinosaurs roamed the earth 65 million years ago, then, you know, you just are not educated enough and we need to educate you. I feel that that's where we are with this, uh, you know, global warming, uh, climate change, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and interestingly, you said, you know, that they changed the terminology because the the world wasn't getting warm enough, you know. And Jay, you said you have also have uh, a lot of uh, uh, discussion on this on your blog. So it's it's drwile dot com is uh, where you'll find. Uh, Jay's blog where you said you have a whole section on global warming that people yeah, can if you click about. on home and then click on categories you'll find global warming as a category uh, one thing you have to realize is just how absurdly uh, uh, political this has all become so one of my favorite climate scientists is uh, Dr. Judith Curry she was a NASA climatologist for years and she was part of the faculty at the Georgia Institute of Technology and she had to resign and she specifically said, a deciding factor was that I no longer know what to say to students and postdocs regarding how to navigate the craziness in the field of climate science. And what she means by wow. craziness is she's been one of those, she was one of these uh, climatologists who when reporters talk to her and they say, you know, well, we know that sea levels rise has been accelerating because of global warming. And Dr. Curry says, actually, no, that's not true. Uh, all you have to do is look at the scientific literature. There's been no acceleration of sea level rise over the last 150 years. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, 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 reporters would be shocked by this. And so they would call, uh, they would contact then somebody else in the, at that university. And she would end up getting punished for telling the truth to these, uh, to these reporters. Uh, and so in the end, she had to quit. Now she's on her own. She retired and she's on her own. And now she has a blog called Climate, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, and it's a really good balanced approach to climate science because she's a climate scientist. She knows how to navigate this issue. And she does a really good job of, of just showing how we don't really understand this at all. Uh, and she's mm -hmm. open to the idea that, you know, rising carbon dioxide levels might be causing a problem. She just doesn't see it in the data. Wasn't there a time when you, like, you felt guilty buying aerosol? I mean, I don't remember <laughs> yeah. exactly what time of my life that was, but I remember looking specifically for something that was not an aerosol because that was supposed to emit, you know, stuff that was bad for the environment. Uh, not thinking about, you know, the deforesting of, you know, other countries that was really bad for the environment and, you know, wrecking ecosystems. So I think that's one thing we have to realize. We have to realize that this science has become ridiculously political. Um, and also, uh, for at least some people, this isn't true for the entire field by any means, but there are some people whose livelihood depends on everyone believing there's a crisis. And if people mm -hmm. didn't believe a crisis, then their livelihood would dry up. Uh, and I'm sure some of those people honestly do think there's a crisis, but there are some people who are fanning the flames simply because it increases the uh, luxury of their livelihood. Uh, and so because this is all so ridiculously political, it's hard to get at the truth of climate science. So what I say is if you're just an individual, uh, a person who wants to uh, learn whether or not global warming is an issue and how much to worry about it, I think the only choice you have 
is to read both sides of the issue. You've got to take a few people who really believe climate uh, change is a real, real problem. And you have to take a couple people who don't believe it's a real, real problem. And you have to read them both. And you have to try and contrast how they're looking at the data to see what you think is the most reasonable response. Because like I said, it's all gotten so political. Everything we see about it in the regular literature and the, in the media and so forth, it's all tainted. And unless you have the time mm -hmm. and knowledge to be able to navigate the scientific literature in the issue, you'll have no idea what's real and what's fake. Right. And uh, that's, that's where the crux of this problem comes in, because most of us don't walk around knowing the right questions to ask or, um, you know, how to refute it. I mean, basically, we know it's not true. I remember years ago, probably early 2000s, um, I had some of the scientists at the Institute for Creation Research um, were friends of mine, and I was emailing back and forth questions, and we were working on our, our novels. And uh, anyway, I was using some of the abstracts from some of the scientists and they actually read sections of our novels to make sure that I had it correct. Um, but one of them, uh, that was a question I posed saying, you know, what about this global warming? And then he came back with exactly what you said. Um, and this is years ago that, you know, the change would be like 0.01%, something like that. So uh, small from what they had been doing uh, with, with some of their research. And so, what we have to look at is say what what we're seeing jay and this is what i uh, tell my own kids i said what we're seeing is extrapolated data they're taking information and saying in 10 years and i mean how do you know you can't even predict where a hurricane's going you don't know where the um, earthquake is going to be you can't predict those very rarely enough ahead of time. Yes, you can put some things um, in place, but it's going to be minutes. You don't know when lava is going to explode uh, from a mountain. So there are so many things, you know, you just know that, oh, that's an active volcano. There are so many things in weather that in the earth's atmosphere, whatever, that, they, I mean, we always laugh. We, we laugh at the weather people, right? You know, they're going to predict sunshine and then it rains. It, it, it's even, it's, it's worse than this in a way because things that you think are unbiased data are not unbiased data. So, for example, we have three ways of measuring global temperature right now. We have a whole bunch of thermometers scattered across the earth, and that's, we average them and come up with one global temperature. We have satellites that are constantly orbiting the earth and, and looking at microwaves uh, to determine the temperature of the atmosphere. And we have uh, uh, weather balloons that rise up, move around, and so forth, and they uh, use uh, radio waves uh, to determine the temperature. All three of those uh, methods come up with different answers. Uh, and so uh, uh, if you, if you want to know what the average temperature of the earth is, you first have to ask, well, how are you going to measure it? And it turns out we have three ways and they all come up different answers. And what's particularly bad is the thermometer data are usually what's shown because they show the most warming. So usually when you see graphs of global temperature, it's the thermometer data. And even a lot of climate scientists don't realize that that thermometer data is constantly tweaked. And so uh, data from even the early 1900s is changed in the present uh, because in order to do these averages, you have to develop a model of how much does this section of the earth contribute to the global temperature. Every time that model changes, all the past data change as well. 
So How what can I do see, that? Well, because, you know, there's this, there's raw data, right? Where you just, you know, the thermometer, you read the thermometer uh, and then, but if right. you just took all of the raw data and add, added a thousand points together and divided by a thousand to get the average temperature, that really wouldn't be the average temperature, right? Because most thermometers are on the land. Land makes only 30% of the earth. So I don't get a true global temperature by just averaging the raw data. I have to figure out a model that tells me how much this particular region of the earth contributes to global temperature. Well, every time I learn more and I change that model, then when I go back and do all the historical calculations again, I get brand new data, even for the 1900s. I've got a, a, a blog post I wrote on the 2018 called, Does Anybody Really Know How Hot It Is? Uh, and it shows uh, two th a thermometer station, uh, NIWA7, but almost every thermometer station is like this. It shows the, uh, the raw data, and then it shows the currently adjusted data. And surprise, surprise, the currently adjusted data uh, reduced all the early temperatures. So all the early temperatures are lower than the raw data indicate, but the recent temperatures are equal to what the raw data indicate. So in the end, they've tweaked these data to make it look like it's warming. Hmm. Uh, and, so they can just continue to and push the sad, their agenda. Well, and the sad thing is, you know, most people who look at a graph of data think they're looking at actual data, but no, they're not. They're looking at raw data that's been processed through a model that assumes global warming is happening. So surprise, surprise, the data support global warming. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and like oh, I said, a lot of climate scientists don't even know this. They don't even know how these data are adjusted on the fly. I, I remember I, uh, the reason I wrote that article was I was reading from a climate scientist who said I was preparing a talk on a particular region. And so I had an old talk that I had given 20 years ago, so I pulled up the graphs. And so I wanted to add, you know, to the more recent data. So I looked at the current graph and I noticed that even the data from 1910 had changed. <laughs> and he said he had no idea that was going on until he actually had the odd coincidence of giving a talk on a region that he had given a talk on 20 years ago. And he was forced to actually compare the two sets of data. So where is this, who has, that's crazy, who has the, the source? I mean, where are you getting this source? Is it a department of the government? Is it NASA? I mean, well, it depends. What, where's the, so okay. there's, there, there are two sets of, uh, uh, two standard, there are several sets of data, but two kind of standard sets of data of, of, uh, of thermometers. One is called the GISS temp. Uh, set data set, and that's maintained by NASA. Uh, and so they've got the raw data somewhere, but you never see that. What you always see mm -hmm. is the, the massage data. And then the University of East Anglia that was involved in that uh, email controversy several years ago, uh, they have the HADCRUT4, H-A-D-C-R-U-T-4 uh, data set. And that's, the, that's sort of the European version of uh, the NASA data set. But it's held by University of East Anglia. And their raw data is a little different. But once again, you never see the raw data. You end up seeing the massaged data. So if these climatologists really said what basically you've said in this 
whole discussion, you know, if everyone agreed, just like you said, the Paris, let's go with the Paris Climate Accord. So if everyone and every country did what they were supposed to, uh, the climate's going to change 0.01%, everyone would probably be out of a job. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> There's really nothing to track. Yeah, well, because right. the argument the argument is, well, the Paris Accord is the first step, and once everybody's on board with the Paris Accord, we'll do something else, and that makes sense. But the point is, unless you can give me a plan that does more than 0.01 percent, I'm not sure why to jump on board to begin with. You know, if if you know, you told me, you know, if you uh, if you just cut back on eating meat, you'd live 0.01 percent longer. I'd say, you know, meat's worth it. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and die 0.01% sooner so that I can have some fun eating meat. And that's the thing. If I am going to make gasoline more expensive and electricity more expensive and all of that uh, to shave 0.01% off the temperature, it, it's not worth that kind of sacrifice. Now, if you can really show me that it's a problem and that that 0.01% will make a difference, then I'm willing to talk. But I can't even see that it's a problem yet because no one agrees. No one in the scientific literature can tell me how much rising carbon dioxide levels in, uh, affect the temperature because no one knows the equilibrium climate sensitivity, which is what everybody needs to know to make an informed decision about climate change. Yeah, that, that, was, that question is really interesting. So, you know, they've made our cars so much more expensive to cut back on emissions. Well, you know, some of those are good. Some of because some of those have nothing thing, to do with yeah. carbon dioxide. So, for example, when they put when they forced auto manufacturers to put catalytic converters on cars, auto manufacturers said, "Look, this is going to raise the cost of every car. Uh, it's not fair to consumers and so forth." But the uh, uh, the government, the federal government, said, "Look, carbon monoxide levels are rising significantly. Uh, catalytic converters mm -hmm. get rid of carbon monoxide, most of it, from the car, and so this should really reduce it." And in fact over the last 50 years or however many years it's been since catalytic converters became standard carbon monoxide levels have gone back to their pre-industrial uh, uh, level almost Very specifically good. because of catalytic converters now that did increase the cost of a car but it had a good outcome but that's the problem right. nowadays in this is climate change we don't talk about what's the pot what's the outcome really going to be all we talk about is the worst possible scenario uh, and then they, we ask uh, everybody to, to, to you know, uh, raise prices. And, and, and it's more than raising prices. Uh, every time you raise electricity prices, people die. And we know this. This is, once again, in the scientific literature, very easy to track. There's one scientific paper that said uh, the increase in uh, electricity prices in one of these northeastern states, I can't remember which one, actually killed more people than automobile accidents. Uh, because wow. when we raise electricity prices, there are people who cannot afford to heat their homes anymore. Uh, and so they stop heating their homes and they die from exposure. Uh, this uh, this wow. tends to affect the, uh, the elderly more than everybody else. Um, but we know that. So we know if I do anything to increase electricity prices, people are going to die. So here's the correct question. If you really want to know what to do about climate change, ask yourself this. How many old people are you willing to kill in order to stave off something that may not happen? Because that's the end result. Wow. That's what it is. Now, if I knew equilibrium climate sensitivity was 3.5, and so I know that uh, we're on track to, to, you know, increase temperatures by four or five degrees Celsius over the course of a couple hundred years, then yeah, I might be willing to kill a few old people uh, in order to fix that. 
But if I don't even know that that's going to happen, am I really willing to kill old people to fix it? We don't want to kill old people today. <laughs> I don't think you do either. I know this is a philosophical question. Yeah. No, He's but really yeah. nice, friends. <laughs> yeah, he but, doesn't really mean it. <laughs> but you, you've got to put I things in that stark saying, of terms, right? right? right. And, you know, like, for right. example, uh, what's the one thing that's going to keep children from dying in Africa? What's one the most efficient thing we can do to keep children from dying in Africa? Industrialize Africa. Because every industrialized country has a much higher infant uh, uh, survival rate than non-industrialized countries. We know that. And it's specifically because of industrialization that, you know, we live healthier lifestyles in the industrialized world than we do, do in the non-industrialized world. But if we industrialize Africa, that's going to increase our carbon dioxide emissions hugely. So are we going to let these African kids die uh, just to stave off global warming? Got to ask yourself that question, because if you really believe it's carbon dioxide levels and you really believe the only way to reduce carbon dioxide levels is to not produce carbon dioxide, then you're killing a bunch of old people and you're killing a bunch of African children. Yeah, and that's where it, it goes back to politics, which it seems as much as we want to avoid it, um, yeah. we're immersed in it. And, you know, the, the thing that's come out, I think, that has made most of us, I like, consider myself rational and um, logical, you know, when you say things like we need to get rid of all the cows, and I love meat too, Jay, so I'm right there with you, <laughs> and we cannot fly in planes, all of the money that they've put in on these, you know, smart trains, and you know, what did California put in this, uh, whatever, however many billions of dollars to have some kind of, of uh, train built that didn't work, or... Uh, fail dismally, you know, you you dump all of this money and all of this concern into things that are just untenable. We're not getting rid of the cows, you know, because of CO2 emission. We're not going to get rid of airplanes. And so why even bother talking about it? And why are these people jumping on board? That's my question. Yeah. No. Well, and you know, it, and it gets, uh, it goes from the really serious, like how many African children do you want to kill to keep this from happening to the, to the absurd. So, for example, my wife and I go to Montana almost every year. We love to see Glacier National Park. For years in Glacier National Park, there have been signs up in certain visitor centers, and the signs are titled, Goodbye to the Glaciers. And these signs say the, the glaciers are now rapidly shrinking due to human-caused climate change. Computer models indicate the glaciers will all be gone by the year 2020. Now, they've been in those visitor centers for years. But just this year, they had to take all those signs out <laughs> because obviously we're at 2019 and these, the glaciers at Glacier National Park aren't anywhere close to disappearing. So they know that the glaciers aren't going to disappear by 2020. Yet lots of unsuspecting visitors have been told that scientists tell them that the glaciers are going to be gone by 2020. This happens routinely. It's a great it's a great marketing ploy. Yeah, you're going to go back, you know. <laughs> if they're going to be gone, I better get there every give, single give year. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> they had to remove all believe. those signs. <laughs> oh, and that, and, and that happened, like I said, that happens a lot. You know, you have idiots like uh, uh, Vice President Al Gore saying that the North Pole is going to be ice-free, you know, in five years. And now it's been uh, 10 years or whatever since he said that. And the North Pole is incredibly icy still. 
So, you know, well, it, don't you think that it all, it got all it goes with cycles, you know, it's like, we didn't really have any notable hurricanes in Florida, you know, and then however many years ago we had three or four go through. So, I mean, things go in cycles where things just happen. I mean, yes, there's been some shrinkage of some of the glaciers, maybe a little bit here and there. And then a few years later, they're back, you know, even more than they were. Well, and and even the the fact that the globe's warming a little bit right now, uh, the temperatures we're seeing right now are still very cool compared to temperatures in the past. Uh, so, you know, uh, for a long time, it's been well known based just on things like uh, harvest records and things like that, that the Northern Hemisphere was very warm during the medieval period. Uh, uh, climatologists actually call it the medieval warm period. And the Nor- it was well known for a long time that the Northern Hemisphere has been significantly hotter in the past. Uh, however, a lot of climate change uh, advocates have argued that in the Southern Hemisphere, it was actually a lot cooler and our temperatures now are very unusual for the southern hemisphere uh but now uh there's been a series of studies uh published just over the last two years that show in every major region of the planet the medieval period was warmer uh than it is today uh so in the end we know that these temperatures aren't unusual so they could completely be the result of a natural cycle uh and until we get to temperatures that aren't unusual uh we may never know whether it's part of a natural cycle right do you have, um, and I guess we can look at your blog, some good sources of information about this? Because, you know, I feel like you just uh, told me there was no Santa with telling me that there is no really good data. I mean, I just, like, why? I guess I just assumed, and I'm not a climatologist, but that at least the data would be correct. Well, I mean, definitely go to that uh, article. Does anybody really know how hot it is? If you're a Chicago fan, okay. you should be able to remember that title. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, and then another one that I uh, have uh, uh, data indicate that, that Earth was warmer in the Middle Ages. Data indicate that Earth was warmer in the Middle Ages. Uh, if you just Google okay. that phrase in my name, you're going to find that without even going to my blog. Then you can you can see these data because in the end, it's really significant. It's it's important for people to know just how little we understand about all of this. Uh, there's a uh, from just this year, early this year, I've got a uh, blog post called "These Climate Scientists Predict Global Cooling." And they've got a model out that's consistent with current temperatures, and they're actually going to—they're actually showing that in the next, uh, let's see, hundred years, the globe's going to cool off. And I'm not—I—I—I I, I, I don't know whether their model is correct, but I can tell you this: there's no way to say it's less correct than the other models <laughs> because we don't know. So it's—you know—at least I'm some climate time. I'm shaking my head. You can't. Yeah. You can't see me. <laughs> At least some climatologists think that the Earth's going to cool off here now, that we've actually reached the peak. Uh, we do know we've reached a plateau in, in global temperatures. Global temperatures haven't increased significantly in 20 years, and they're actually saying it's going to go down. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> well, like I said in the opening, we all want to be good stewards of our environment, Absolutely. you know, and so, you know, my kids. Uh, I think it skipped a generation because, you know, we do this recycling and then we hear that, you know, recycling, um, most of what you recycle, they throw away. They're not even <laughs> really recycling. Because it yeah, can't it's sell terrible. Right Yeah. Plastic's the right. exception. Plastic is completely recyclable and the recycled plastic's almost as inexpensive as the real and is just as good. But paper, yeah, we do a lot of recycling of paper. Most of that gets thrown away or burnt. <laughs> 
Yeah. Because <laughs> you just glass, can't sell recycled know. paper. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I, my kids don't really, you know. Um, so it, it's interesting that our generation does really recycle. And then the next generation, although they grew up with it, you know, they're just not, you know, because of what they've heard or whatever. But, but uh, yeah, so this has been very informative. Uh, it's really given us some concrete things to look at and to understand as well as, you know, not to worry about it because uh, it, it, I know that people are worried about it and they shouldn't be because it's just something that may or may not happen. Well, and you know, uh, uh, that's, that's the other thing you have to think about uh, all of the time and energy you spend worrying about or spending money on trying to mitigate climate change. You are uh, ignoring known uh, problems with our environment. I mean, we know that we're killing our, uh, uh, our, our oceans close to the shore uh, because of all the construction that's throwing sediment into the, into the waters and killing the coral. Uh, we just, there's been some really good research out there indicating that coral are uh, now threatened by uh, suntan lotion or sun, sunscreen. Yeah, sunscreen. I saw that. Sunscreen. Uh, and, you know, all of the money we're dumping into global warming is money that could be put into these things that we know are a problem. Now, I'm not saying mm -hmm. don't study global warming. I think it's important to find out what the equilibrium climate sensitivity is. Uh, but we are spending an inordinate amount of money on a problem we don't even know is real. Uh, when we have real serious uh, environmental issues that we could be spending money. And that's unfortunate. They just talked about the sunscreen issue that some, because I live near the beaches, but some of the beaches are actually going to ban it um, because of that. And, you know, I always go back to as much as you can do naturally do um, because there are just so many additives and half the things that you buy at the store, if not more, uh, that are detrimental to, you know, your health. Um, you know, like baby shampoo is just horrible with all of the stuff that's yeah. in there. Uh, and so, you know, people just don't know this and uh, we go blindly and we get uh, off track with some of these other things. So, Jay, thank you so much for coming on again and uh, giving us some of your wisdom and information here that we can at least have a platform to go off of to study more. Well, I'm glad I, glad I can help. Wonderful. Well, guys, you can find the show notes for today's episode at creationsciencepodcast.com a look for climate change the real story thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon bye-bye thanks so much for listening to the creation science podcast you can find the show notes at creationsciencepodcast.com and as always reach out to me felice gerwitz at felice at mediaangels.com take care god bless and i hope you enjoy teaching your children and learning about the beautiful world that God created. Please share this broadcast with a friend and thanks so much.